1: We have a mission to improve the welfare of horses throughout the world through the safe education of riders, handlers, and trainers, and that's what these chats are all about. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Today I'd like to introduce Margaret Forster. Margaret is a general all-round rider and coach. She not only rides and coaches dressage, eventing, and show jumping, she does a lot of trekking, and she's also done stock work and track work and fits all of this into a busy life of coaching full-time with four children. How are you today, Margaret?
0: Um, I'm very well, thank
1: you, Gwyneth. How are you? (laughs) Wonderful. Margaret, we normally start off with your favourite quote. Have you got a quote you can talk to us about today?
0: I have. I can't actually state the owner of this quote. I know that it's come back through generations. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I frequently find myself saying to people is a quote in which if you Allow the horse to think that you have 10, 15 minutes to do something and it needs to be done in a hurry. It's going to take you all day to achieve that end result. Okay. If you yes. pretend to the horse that you have all day and you take your time and back off, then it'll take you 10 minutes and it'll be done. Yeah. And I find that that applies to things like floating, achieving transitions. If you get in a hurry, if you push, 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 hassle, hassle, come on, we've got to do it now, it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if you back off and you say, okay, we might have a canter sometime later on today, the horse will go, oh, canter, okay, and then you've got it straight away or on the float, not a problem. So a lot of the response that we get from our horses is relevant to the amount of stress and our own personal attitude to that particular subject, and it's relevant regardless as to what discipline you're applying it to and what you're actually trying to achieve.
1: I was just going to ask you about the stress. Do you think if you think if you mm-hmm. put yourself on a timeline, you've got the stress, but if you say you've got all day, you don't? But you've already answered that question anyway.
0: Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. because I, horses don't work on a clock. No, no. They do work to stress response mm-hmm. and the attitude of the trainer, of the person who's handling them. And if that person is stressed and tense, then immediately the horse becomes stressed and tense, which means that your achievement level is going to go down. But yes. if you can go in there and say, yeah, and there's a flow." look sometime today. It'd be nice if you got on. They'll go, yep. oh, yeah, okay. <laughs>
1: yes. And
0: on they go. And yep. there's not a problem. Good. Hmm. Good. But I don't know who it was that actually said that, but it was.
1: <laughs> Margaret, you've got background in a lot of different types of work with horses. Mm-hmm. Tell us, first of all, how you started with horses because you've got a fairly broad background. I'm interested to know what your first yes. ma- memories are.
0: Yeah. Okay. I first recall having been taken riding when I was about five or six years old. I'm 47 now, so that goes back more than 40 years. And at that stage, it was just the usual, you know, once on a weekend trail ride, that kind of thing. I took to it immediately like a duck to water. but my parents weren't interested in supporting that at all. I was fortunate enough to have a friend in high school who had horses. Her mother was a single mother with two kids. She was she was quite strapped to produce her kids as she wanted to her daughter would come to my house to eat but i would go to her house to ride so she and her brother always had very good horses and her brother was kind enough to let me ride his so i grew up with this best friend of mine through high school who's still now a best friend of mine even now all these years later and the reason that i continued riding and was able to learn to ride was basically because of that family their family Mm -hmm. supported me in riding and that was how that all came about so she now rides fei in sydney and has a great time and has continued with it. She doesn't let me ride her horse anymore. But um, that was how I got into everything. And I was then a rider and all I ever wanted to do was ride. So when I finished year 12, I went out and did 3 months track work to get myself the on-ground experience that I needed to get into ag college. Okay. And okay. proceeded on to – I went to Marcus Oldham mm-hmm. in Geelong for the 12-month period there.
1: Well, I was going to ask you, you know, did you have a career? What made you – decide because you already had it decided by the time you left school when did you decide what what made that decision was it your friend was it something else
0: no being raised in Canberra the typical career then was finish year 12 and go into the public service and I completed the public service test at the same time that I was applying for different agricultural colleges around the country wanting to do a horse course somewhere I was offered a traineeship position in the taxation department. In the same week that I was offered the placement in Marcus Olden Farm Management College, and I grabbed the horses and ran, and that was it, and that was too. At seventeen, that was the changeover, as was I going to stay in Canberra and be a public servant and work the way up through that system and have a horse, or was I going to turn it into a career, but all I ever wanted to do was ride?
2: Mm,
0: mm. So the Marcus Olden course allowed me to take a horse down there to the the college for that twelve month period. During the 12-month period, that included a two-week tour of the Scone district. We went through all the big thoroughbred studs and the breeding facilities in Scone through the vet clinic, had a look at everything, and also two weeks tour of New Zealand as well. We went to New Zealand and went through, again, the standard thoroughbred studs over there, and a lot of training facilities, they still train people chasers in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. So we were able to look at the training programs of some of those riders. They don't do that so much in Australia anymore, but they did then. This is going back, this is in 1989. Mm -hmm. While I was in New Zealand, my parents' divorce finalised, and my mother rang me and said, Well, where you, you know, the house is sold, you have basically have nowhere to come back to when you finish your course in six weeks' time. And this is while I was in New Zealand, I was about 17 or 18 at that time. I was on a work experience placement. So I went to the manager of the work experience farm and I said, I'm effectively homeless as of six weeks. Can I can I work for you? Can I come back here? Because I had to go back to Geelong graduate. Mm-hmm. And I was looking for somewhere to live. And this gentleman was very kind and said, well, we don't have a place here. The farm wasn't big enough that I was on at the time. But he was happy to set me up with one of the bigger commercial studs, which he did. So I came back to Geelong, graduated, and then flew out of Tullamarine at the end of 1989 with a one-way ticket to Auckland, <laughs> 20 bucks and a bag of clothes. Wow, wow. And that was it. Yeah, that was it. And I was collected from the Auckland airport by the stud manager of this farm that I was working on who took me to the place and I was in New Zealand for two years and had a ball. Okay, okay. Mm. And then when that finished, came back to Australia again.
1: Yeah. I'm just thinking because, you know, you chose to go horses rather than being a public servant. Yes. What core skills, what character traits did you have, do you think? Or what did you have that made you make that choice rather than the – comfy, cushy, public servant life?
0: Single-mindedness. Okay. All I ever wanted to do was ride. I did not want to and I do not want to now sit in an office and tap numbers into a machine. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. So single-mindedness, that pretty much covers
0: Mm. it then. Yep. Yeah. yeah, all I ever wanted to do was ride a horse. And what I would do on the stud farms in New Zealand, because they were stud farms, they didn't have riding horses, they had yearlings. Yes. They had brood mares who were breeding and they had stallions, but they did have the occasional gelding that was out in the paddock as an uncle, so to speak, to the uh-huh. yearlings. When the weanlings were weaned, they would go into the paddock with this uncle and I was in the habit because we lived on the farm of sneaking down to the paddocks at night time after work (laughs) with a rope and I would rope the gelding in the paddock and jump on him and ride him with a rope around his neck in the paddock just so I had something to ride. That's the level of the obsession that there was. There was no way I was going to work in taxation.
1: Yeah, yeah. So So, did you get caught for that?
0: No, God, no, no one ever said anything. <laughs> but during lunchtime, this is the kick of it, during lunchtime, yeah. these very big stud farms, which would have 350 or 400 broodmares, yeah. would have teaser ponies. They would have little pony stallions, yes. usually Welsh or a Welsh yep. cross. They are about maybe you know 11 to 13 hands. And they were stallion ponies, and they were kept just to tease the brood mares. None of them were broken in; mm-hmm. they were unhandleable. Apart from catching them, you know, they, they yep. wore their head collars permanently, and they would catch them with a lead rope and just show them to the mare. And the mare would show she's on or on season or she's not. Yep. So our lunchtime entertainment in the broodmare team was to bring these unbroken ponies into the serving barn, which was usually a an arena surface type building, or about twenty by twenty meters square. And we would hop on with the stallion manager holding the stallion chain around the pony's nose so it couldn't move. And we'd wrap our hands through the breadlocked mane of these ponies and we'd give them a the nod and they'd let go. And our lunchtime entertainment was, how long can you stay on the teaser pony for? <laughs> so we'd yeah. have like miniature rodeos <laughs> around yep. the serving yep. barn yep. at lunchtime. Yep. This for fun. <laughs> and, you know, that's, that's what we were into. It was good fun. We had a great time.
1: All right. So from there, did you come back and you did some stock work as well?
0: I did a lot of trail riding. Yep. The breeding season with thoroughbreds obviously has a, is a, a yes. seasonal employment. Mm-hmm. So in New Zealand and when I came back to Australia during the off season, I would work on trail ride farm. So I would take out public trail rides. And when I came back to Australia, the first job was at the Oaks Ranch at Mogo on the south coast of New South Wales. Mm-hmm. And I lived there in the um, the staff accommodation of what was then like a resort property. And people would come in for the holidays and they would stay for a weekend or a week or whatever and they'd trail ride and they'd fish and all that kind of thing. And I was responsible for the riding school horses and the the trail riding. Yep. And did that for a time until, again, you know, seasonal work. Winter kicked in and no one went riding in winter, so that was the end of that. Okay. And then ended up working on the full board staff at a property called Bibaringa, which is here in Canberra now. Mm -hmm. So I came back to Canberra after about three years out, four years out.
1: Okay, now we've talked a lot about, you know, two dressage show jumping, eventing, classical trained coaches, riders. Mm Yeah. Something and I know, you know, just from my own experience that working track work, riding track work, stock Mm -hmm. work, you learn different things. What's something that you learned? (laughs) You know, different techniques to use with horses, different different, exactly. Tell us a couple of different techniques that you might use that you've then been able to incorporate um, with your more classical riding.
0: All right. Well, not so much classical, but in relation to the control of the very young horse. Yep. The typical tightness of a throat lash, for example, Mm -hmm. is four fingers sideways against the cheekbone. If -hmm. you can do up your throat lash and fit in your four fingers hand sideways between the cheekbone and the throat lash, your cheekbone is set at the correct fitness Mm -hmm. for that horse. When you're riding a green broken two-year-old thoroughbred and you take them out the back of the town away from the racetrack to trail ride them up and down hills to get their fitness work happening, you tighten the throat lash right up so that it's sitting against the gullet of the horse's throat. That way, if the horse bolts on you, which they do because they're two-year-olds unbroken and you're sitting on a flight animal, they've got about probably 40 to 50 meters of air space in their lungs. But the throat lash being tight prevents any more airway from incoming when they stretch their necks out and start bolting. Okay. So the trainer would always say, if you're going out, do your throat lashes right up, and then when they bolt, <laughs> you can't get more than 40 or 50 <laughs> meters in that stuff, which works. Okay. So if you're sitting on a horse that is a flight animal and it's untrained, and you're putting your life at risk going out there in the big wide world where there are no racetrack fencing, you're out in the open. We used to ride them around the back of town. Uh, if you do your throat lash up and they do take off on you, you can sit up tall and stay there for the 40, 50 meters that it takes for them to run out of the oxygen that they contain in their lungs at that time. Mm-hmm. and then because the throat lash is tight against their throat, they can't breathe, so they're going to stop.
1: Okay. And then as they stop, they've got their head and neck mm-hmm. in a different position when they're yeah, more they, under control. Yeah, they're back
0: down. Yep. That's right. And then right. you can bring them back under control again.
1: Yep. So if they don't need it, it doesn't affect them. only That's comes right. into effect when you actually need it. Yes. Yep. If they take yep.
0: off and stretch their heads out, the throat lash will cut the, air, the airway. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay. Yeah, right. So that
0: worked? Yep,
1: yep. Now something about trekking.
0: Yep. Oh, trekking. Okay. I've always liked going on up to Kosciuszko, going on trail rides around the mountains, and every year the Bemboka Show Society on the far south coast of New South Wales runs its um, show society-supported trek, which is a wonderful weekend. If anyone ever gets the chance to go to Bemboka, it's fantastic to ride up into the rainforest areas of the Brown Mountain. It's very steep, very hilly, and there are lots of snakes, which are usually kind enough to get away from us as we approach but the trekking is fantastic for your eventer in relation to cross-country. Mm-hmm. It sells them. They move in a group. They have to keep going with the rest of the group because they're a herd animal. And for a young eventer who's uncertain about going forward, it can help to resolve that issue. It can really bring them along in regards to keep going, keep going. Everyone else is keeping on going, so you have to keep going too. And it has them view and be, have the experience of many different environments. They get to see, for example, at this year's Bamboka, which was only the first weekend in October, they ride through town. We go across the highway of the Brown Mountain, which I think is the Surrey Mountains Highway, Mm -hmm. and you're going through town, through people's backyards, literally to get out into the mountain. So they see all sorts of different things. There were ponies there, there were kids bouncing on trampolines We were riding literally right through people's yards on the way out there. So trekking is a great desensitiser for horses who are expected to go out and produce their best focus and their best response in an environment which might have... Outside influences also occurring at the time.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, and I suppose if they're going with some older, quiet horses, it's just staying mm-hmm. together in that herd instinct. I can see what you mean yeah. there. Yep,
0: yep. Yep, tag along and keep on going. Everyone else is going there, so therefore you're going there as well. And right. it, it teaches them to follow the group.
1: Yep, yep. Okay, mm-hmm. so from there you've done eventing, mm-hmm. show jumping and dressage. Then you became, uh, there's a bit of a story about why you stopped show jumping and doing eventing for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Why was that?
0: The horse that I bought to event with the intention of having the enormous eventing career on this fabulous animal, I purchased when she was two rising three from a breaker. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I wasn't aware that I was pregnant with my first child. So I bought the green broken two year old pregnant with the first kid and then proceeded to have four children two and a half years apart, roughly, over the next eight to nine years. So in the duration of the consistent pregnancies, the eventing went out the window because the arrangement that I made with my husband then was that this was a very good horse I would keep on working at and I would ride through all of those pregnancies. But out of consideration for his concerns, I wouldn't jump. Okay. So the horse ended up being a dressage horse, and we went from the breakers to St George. Within, she was at St George by the time she was nine. Mm-hmm. So it took us seven years with four pregnancies in the middle to get from breaking to pre-St. George competition level. But in that time frame, I jumped very little, only during the off-pregnancy stages, I guess you could say. Okay. By the time she was 10 and I was finished having babies, I had a very, very good dressage horse who was keen to jump but hadn't done a very great deal.
1: Mm-hmm. So did you um, event so then? then I, yeah, you evented yeah. then?
0: Yep. I did, yeah. And she won on her dressage score every time. (laughs) She was brilliant, yeah. And she's now retired, very happily. She's rising 23 now and she's retired down the south coast where the temperature's a bit warmer than it Mm -hmm. is in Canberra. She has arthritis in her knees because of the jumping. I worked her very, very hard in her first 10 to 12 years and she was my level one and also my level two horse as well. Mm -hmm. So she qualified me for both the level one work and the level two dressage qualification. Mm. So I owe her this (laughs) time.
1: Okay then, I want you to think about you know as you're progressing through, not just through your trekking and stock work and track work, but through your dressage particularly or eventing, show jumping, someone who's stood out or people that have influenced you and helped you learn more about horses?
0: All of the Level 1 and Level 2 EA work has been done with Simon Cale, who's Mm -hmm. a dual Level 3, he's a Level 3 general and a Level 3 eventer. Simon is very, very, very good as a coach educator and as an educator of writers. He doesn't mince words. So I've come out of his training with an extremely thick skin. It doesn't matter what you say to me. I'm not going to cry. (laughs) That's come from uh, him very much, though.
1: I was going to say, Simon, um, it was actually an earlier guest, and he did say, no one comes to me if they're faint-hearted or something like that. So, you know, you must not captured that. Mm -hmm.
0: Yes. And when he's available now in camera, which is rare these days, but I still do go to Simon because I know that what he says, A, it's true, Mm -hmm. B, it's to the point, C, there is no padding around what he says. If he says it's shit, it's shit. Mm -hmm. If he says it's good, it's good. You take the word that you hear in front of you and there's no compensation for the fact that you've paid him and you're trying hard. That doesn't matter. What he sees in front of you is what he says and what he describes, which I find very good as a coaching tool. The other person who's been enormously helpful to me has been Fiona Gruen, who's a British level two, I think, and an Australian level one coach. She's an inventor as well. She supports the Canberra Horse Trials Group, the National Capital Horse Trials, very strongly. I refer to Fiona personally as head coach because she mentored me all through my coaching career, and Mm -hmm. she's a wonderful person whom I can still now ring, and the same with Simon, and say, I've got this, what would you do? Yes. And in this situation, I would probably ring both of them. I would ring Fiona and say, what would you do about that? And then I'd ring Simon and say, what do you do about that? And they Mm -hmm. both give me a different answer, and then I've got two choices, (laughs) (laughs) which is much better than only having one, yeah. And then I'll add my own in as well, and then I've got three. So it gives you different alternatives because, as we all know, not every single method works with every single horse. It just allows you, have you to, have to, have
1: a, to step out it of it the allows box you a bit. More.
0: Mm. Yeah. You need to have a filing cabinet in the back of your head, and you can have your way of doing things, so-and-so's way of doing things, such-and-such's way, and what's-his-name's way, and one of those is going to work. Yep. But yep. if you only have one way and your way doesn't work with that individual horse, then what are you going to do? Yes. Yeah, so the thing that I appreciate about both of those coaches, Fiona Gruen and Simon Kale, is that I can still now, 10 years down the track, converse with them and say, this is happening, what's your opinion? And they'll immediately give me their carte blanche as it is, this is what I would do, Mm -hmm. which is very, very helpful in regards to coaching support. Yep.
1: All right. Um, Now, through that, what's the name of your horse that you got as a two-year-old and she's 23? What was her name?
0: Her competition name was Curio 2. Are you familiar with Curio? How do you spell C-U-R-I-O. Oh, yep, C-U-R- yep, yep. yep. Okay, so Curio was a buck-jumping horse yep. around the time of World War One, World War Two. Curio was a draft horse cross chestnut mare who went unridden for 23 years, and she was only ridden once the arthritis had kicked in for the eight-second time frame. She was unridden for eight seconds for 23 years, which is pretty phenomenal for any mm. buck-jumping horse in the country. Mm. And when I first got Emma, as I call her, my Curio II, I would land after a jump forward over the horse's neck. And she would look at me over her shoulder, flick an ear back, tip her right hip up in the air and toss me over her shoulder. So I'd go, canter, 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 jump, plop, get up, go catch the horse, get back on. (laughs) Canter, 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 jump, plop. And so she taught me to sit up. And because she bucked me off pretty much every time I went over a jump, I named her officially with the EA Curio 2. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is why she has that bearing. And people who are aware of the history of the original curio will read, would read that on her entry form, and I would go then and check in with the judge, and they'd nod at me and go, yeah, this is going to be an interesting test. <laughs> <laughs> but she never bucked me off in the, in the dressage, only in the show jumping.
1: Okay, okay.
0: And once I learned to sit up straight, then that was the end of that. She can't get me off anymore. She hasn't done for years. Good, good. What yep. do you think
1: your proudest moment's been?
0: Um, when that horse at the age of 20 in my mind won the barium horse trials and okay. she failed to do so because of rider error she won her dressage score at the age of 20 on a 78% she show jumped clear she cross country clear both in time i misinterpreted the placement of the tripods of the show jumping and i misjumped nine and got myself eliminated
2: oh okay
0: So she didn't come home with any ribbons. She was eliminated in the show jumping, unfortunately, and prior to the cross country. But her scoring was such that if I, as a rider, had not made that error, that horse would have won Verimel Horse Trials as a Mm, 20-year-old. She's a great horse. Yeah.
1: All right. Thinking about how do you fit this all in just as a regular Mm. thing? Tell me some time-saving, time-planning tips because you're you're a full-time coach anyway and you've got four kids. Yep.
0: Yes kids on my own, by I say. I separated them from their father about 10 years ago. I get up at 5 mm-hmm. and I'm at the paddock at 5.30, which puts me on the horse at 5.45. I ride from 5.45 until 6.30. I'm off and put the horse away at 6.30. 6.45, I'm back in the car. I'm back in the house by 7 a.m. Okay. So I walk in the door, open the curtains, wake the kids up, and we're all in the car to go to school by 8. How old are the kids? 19, 16, 13, and 11. Okay. And I've been doing that time frame since the youngest one, uh, sorry, since the oldest one was 13 and okay. old enough to be in the house unattended for that hour and a half time frame.
1: Yes. Yep.
0: Yeah. So they, they don't even know I'm gone.
1: So pretty much it's preparation, planning, watching, time, timekeeping. You have
0: to be yep. organised. Yep. Yeah, you have yep. to have the car packed, your feeds packed, the saddle in the, in the car, everything has to be organised the night before.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: You get up, get in the vehicle and go. And that's one of my big promotions has been I teach many, many, and I've I've spent 20-odd years teaching for riding schools, and this is a really common thing at a riding school. The mother will come in, and I say young mother because she's under 40, who comes in saying, oh, I'm having my first ride back. I'm so excited. I haven't ridden since I was 20-something. And I say, why not? And they say, oh, because I had a family or I had a baby and I had two babies whatever. I haven't ridden in 20 years. I'm like, crikey, I've got four <laughs> other things and I ride every day. What's your problem? Get mm, on. Mm,
2: mm.
0: You don't have to stop just because you have a kid. Yep. And if you have a good horse, you don't have to stop until you have the kid. That was the other thing about Curio too. Once you stopped bucking me off, I rode three to seven and a half months with each pregnancy. Okay. And the only time that I stopped riding then was when it was uncomfortable to dismount. Because mm-hmm. when you dismount, you tip forward over the pommel of the saddle and slide down. When I could feel the kid getting squashed out sideways, I stopped getting on because I don't want to swing the right leg over the wither and jump off outside. Yep. So you can keep going. Yes. Yep. Um, yeah. And if I have one statement that I would like to promote across horse riding in its entirety is you don't have to stop just because you've got a kid. You just have to organize your time frame. Yes. Well, it's not just mm. that. It's different priorities. Yeah. It's not
1: just, you know, I mean, there's other things that people... You know, I'm working full-time. I can't ride. Well, so am I. Yeah.
0: So yeah. am I. always have. But as I said in regards to the taxation thing, all I wanted to do was ride.
1: Yes, yes. So that's all that I've done. Yep. Yeah.
0: Yep. You get one life. You get one shot at a turn on this planet. Mm. You do what you want to do or you're going to miss out.
1: Mm. Mm. I want you to think about in your coaching a common problem that you see. You know, you you might see it with a couple of different students or see it with when you're out competing. <laughs> A common problem and how to fix it.
0: All right. The most common problem that I see, and I generally teach riders from beginner level with their first horse now that I'm away from the riding school situation. I get first horse up to probably elementary, medium and a metre show jumping training competition riders. Mm -hmm. Once my riders get beyond a metre in regards to show jumping, I pass them on to Grant Hughes, who's our local show jumping guru. If they're Mm -hmm. over a metre, they're out of my time frame, they go to Grant. The biggest issue that I see, is lack of understanding of what the horse is trying to communicate to the rider. So what I see in horse riding coaching, you've got about 30% teaching aids. This is how we ask for shoulder in. This is how we ask for traverse, that kind of thing. A third of it is rider psychology. Yes, I know you're worried about this horse, but we can deal with it by doing it this way. The other third is the horse trying to communicate with the rider and the rider completely missing the signals the horse is giving them and misinterpreting them entirely and therefore missing out on the conversation that's going on between the horse and the rider. So a very great deal of it is translation. Your horse is saying this to you. He's trying to tell you this. So you need to, first of all, recognize it. Secondly, understand what he's saying to you. And thirdly, respond appropriately to the conversation you're having with a person it's not a motorbike so if you ask a horse to go into trot poles and a crossbar then his behavior is not consistent with the 30 year old riding school horse that you've been doing that with up until now look at what he's doing and why what's he saying what's he thinking why is he behaving in the manner that he's behaving what is it that is setting him off people will often say oh he won't do such and such My question is, why? Why won't he do such and such? Is the environment not correct? Is there something that's stressing him? Is the rider concerned and expressing their concern going into that transition that the horse is thinking, oh, no, I better not do that because they're worried. People miss the whole point of the fact that the horse is conversing with them. They miss it completely. It goes over their heads. They see the animal as being like a motorbike. I want it to go straight and go over this jump. Why won't it do it? The horse is thinking... There's a brown snake under that pole. I'm not going over that. (laughs) And there's something that's completely different, which is happening, which the rider has no concept of whatsoever because they think, I want to ride the horse over that. So a lot of it is literally translating the conversation between the horse and the rider and telling the rider what the horse is saying to them so they can begin to appreciate that this is a person that they're sitting on. Mm -hmm. And this person that they're sitting on has his own interpretation of what's going on. And the person that they're sitting on's interpretation may not be the same as theirs. And there are times to push through that and say, yes, you have to do it. And there are times to think, okay, he's not going there because, and then deal with the because and deal with what's going on. So only approximately a third of rider coaching is actually teaching the rider how to perform a movement and how to translate, uh, how to perform a transition.
1: I enjoyed the way you talked about the whole conversation between the horse and rider, The tra- you know, mm, the translation, because interpretation, the horse. Yeah.
0: Yep, yep. And
1: I You're think, sitting but, on yeah. another person. Yeah, yeah.
0: And you no. have to have respect for that person's opinions and yeah. you have to have respect for that person's, let's say, consideration for what may or may not be happening. Yes. And when riders, I deal with a lot of riders here in Canberra who have anxiety Mm-hmm. who completely fail to comprehend the fact that their horse might have anxiety too. Yes. <laughs> and they're only making it worse by translating their anxiety and expressing that to the horse. And if they have a horse who's slightly anxious and the rider's going, oh my God, I'm going to die, <laughs> the horse is going, holy oh shit, we're both going to die. And that's the end of that. You're not yep. going over that yeah, yep. so, yep. Yeah. So you have to be able to appreciate that this is not a bicycle. Yes. It is yes. it is a person with its own take on everything who has, believe it or not, a much wider span of instinctive knowledge of what's going on in their immediate environment than what you do. Mm. You see – A pole on the ground. The horse sees a pole on the ground. The that's swooping him. The trees that are swishing from side to side on the other side. The fact that the gate's open and his best friend's over near the paddock fence. So that's very inviting. And also this person who's on top of him isn't quite sure what they're doing and their legs keep wobbling. So what you perceive is not what your horse perceives.
2: Mm, mm.
0: And their instinctive perception of their immediate environment is much, much, much stronger than ours. Yep. Mm. So, all that has to be then conversed, all of that has to be conversed to the rider so they can appreciate what their horse is seeing, what their horse is feeling, where he is in all of this conversation, and then try to, to get their way through that so they can then convince them to go over whatever it is or do whatever it is they're trying to do. Yep. All they're thinking is, well, why won't you canter? Yes. <laughs> you know? yes. So the horse is thinking a thousand times more things than that, I can assure you.
1: <laughs> okay. Oh, just let me interrupt you for a moment just to let people know about the horse industry qualifications at Online Horse College. Have a look at the flexible options with online theory. The practical components can be completed by video or with a qualified expert in your area. That website, again, is onlinehorsecollege.com. Okay, thanks. Now, have you got a, a book that you could recommend for our listeners? I don't think you'll find that in a book anywhere, but I loved it. I think the explanation was good. But if you have got a book that you can
0: recommend? Okay. Let's go to the bookshelf here. I don't tend to read horse books, believe it or not, because I find that they're very much in regards to one person's personal opinion. But one which was not recommended but required reading for us in the Level 2 training is is called The Truth About Horses, and it's by Mm. Andrew McLean. Yep. And again, Andrew McLean has a different opinion from that which I hold in regards to a lot of subjects, but it's an opinion which is valid. Mm -hmm. So I would certainly read it. And the thing that I would suggest, and here's when you're coming back to asking what would you read or what would you think, I like it when my own personal clients go and have lessons with other people. I don't get jealous or cranky if they say, oh, I'm going to go to a clinic with so-and-so and they look at me sideways thinking, is she going to be cranky? I'm having a lesson with somebody else. I embrace that for several reasons. One, because they'll go and have a lesson with somebody else who will charge them three times more than I do. And they'll come back to me saying, he said the same thing you did, <laughs> but you said a lot cheaper. Mm. And I think, yeah, God, so you're sticking with me. That's sweet. <laughs> Secondly... You get someone else's opinion on the same thing. And if you've been saying the same thing to the same rider for the last 10 years, in order to ride a left corner, you need to have your inside leg on the girth, your outside leg back, your shoulders turned left, and your inside rein shorter. I verbalise that the same way each time. Once they've been listening to that for 10 years, that becomes water off a duck's back. They don't hear it anymore. The next instructor that they go to for a clinic lesson will say, Think of a leg yield left into the corner and push your horse into the corner with your left leg, and they'll go, oh yeah, I'll try that, and they'll do exactly what you've been telling them to do for the last ten years, but they're hearing it with a different set of words, and they'll come out of that lesson going, yeah, that worked really well, and I'll say, yeah, that's what I've been telling you for ten years, you just haven't been doing it, because different people will hear and and interpret different things in different ways, and if you can have it verbal, if you can have the same thing verbalized in a manner which clicks. It doesn't matter whose mouth it comes out of. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when you say, what would you read? Yeah, go and read Andrew McLean. That's great. He has an opinion. Yep. And his opinion is verbalized in Andrew McLean's own personal manner. Mm -hmm. And you'll hear exactly the same thing stated by 50,000 other people who will all each have their own individual way of stating that. Yep. And those each individual ways will click with somebody. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sorry, I'll stop preaching now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm just thinking about what What are you looking forward to now? What does your future hold?
0: Oh, uh, my God, I want to retire and get away from these horrible children. Thank you for closing <laughs> the curtains. <cadence. laughs> one of them is just going around the house right now, shutting all the curtains for me. Um, my retirement involves taking the – because I have so many kids and work full-time, I only keep one horse in competition-level work. Mm -hmm. and that horse that I have at the moment, I've gone through maybe six or seven since I retired the old girl and I found one that is a match for me. Mm -hmm. He is a very, very talented dressage horse in that he's just turned five now and he's competing and winning at elementary EA competitions But he is not brave on the cross-country. He doesn't like to approach unknown objects in canter. He would like to walk up and touch them first and smell them and make sure they're okay. Then he gives me the thumbs up. Then we can swing around and jump it. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, that doesn't cut it in regards to competition eventing. So with more exposure, I'm hoping that he will event. We're going down the coast next weekend to do the booker Cup show jumping. So the more different environments he gets to go into to show jump, then hopefully the more he'll come out as a cross-country horse as well and then he'll have an eventing career. That's my goal. I would like in seven years' time, my youngest child finishes year 12. I'm moving down to the south coast. That's a definite. I'm taking that horse with me and we will continue our career on the south coast of New South Wales in between me doing trips around the country. I want to go and do the lap around Australia. (laughs) Okay, then. Pack up the Land Cruiser and go camping for a year. Okay, with your horse? No, he can stay behind. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's too difficult. While that all sounds very lovely, yep. I want to be able to access national parks, which won't allow livestock. Okay. Okay. So the the concept of doing, for example, the Bicentennial Trail doesn't really appeal to me because Melbourne to Queensland isn't that flasher trip anyway, and it's an awful lot of hard work okay. and quite an expensive time frame. So to be able to retire down there and compete at my leisure with a horse who knows what he's doing would be an excellent retirement frame. Okay.
1: All right, then. Mm. So if you can sum up your philosophy into a lesson today, that would be great.
0: Okay. My philosophy in a lesson is that we each have in our own lifespan an approximation of 85 years on this planet. The planet's infinitely old and it's going to continue, one would hope, for quite some time after we've gone. In the very, very tiny, tiny, tiny 85 years that we have, our life goal should be to enjoy and do as much as we can. If that involves horses, fantastic. Go for your life. Ride everything. Do everything. Do track work. Do trekking. Do dressage. Do jumping. Do eventing. Do hacking if you feel like that. Not that I ever have. If you don't want to, great. Go and do what you want to do. But make the most that you possibly can. Milk every single second out of that 85 years you've got because you're going to die. And you'd like to be able to get to that end having done all of those things and say, yes, I nailed it. Mm -hmm. Okay.
1: Sounds good. Margaret, how can people contact you?
0: I'm listed as an EA coach on the EA coaches website. They yep. can contact me usually by either Facebook or by phone. I text often. The phone number is 0431 118 one. or again, many people just PM me on Facebook and book a lesson that way.
1: Okay. Just Margaret Forster on Facebook?
0: Margaret Forster on Facebook. I don't have a website because I don't believe in that kind of thing. I'm not going to promote a philosophy or some great religion as such. I just want to ride my horse. And if people want to ride their horses and do it better, then I'm quite happy to help them. But I do it without all of the promotional and, should I say in small brackets, Pat Pirelli-style promotion. Okay. I'm here, I've been in Canberra, I was born in Canberra and raised in Canberra. I've been here now for 45 out of the 47 years, the other two being in New Zealand and everyone here knows me. So it's very much a word of mouth. I don't advertise anywhere. Okay. The EA website lists me because they list all of their registered coaches, but and I don't have an advertisement for them. And from that, I work full time on the word of mouth
1: okay. that I have. And we'll also put your contact details on horsechats.com slash Margaret Forster. All right, thanks yep, very much that be today.
0: Lovely. The whole that, thing is enjoy no. it. Ride your horse, enjoy it, and listen to what he's saying to you.
1: I'm sure that people will go away now and think about a new way of having a conversation with their horse Yeah. from what you've said, you know, because the translation, the conversation, the translation, interpretation, and think because they're doing the a horse. Yep, and what you perceive is not what your horse perceives. Yep. All right, that's wonderful. Thanks very much. Bye. Thank you for calling. Bye-bye. Yeah.